Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Janice Dean podcast. It is part two of my Fox and Friends weekend co-host podcast package. You heard all about my buddy, Pete Hegseth, and now it's time to learn about Will Kane. I actually did learn so much about Will in this podcast. Did you know that he was an attorney before getting into broadcasting? And his journey to getting to Fox is an impressive one, even at one point almost joining the cast of The View. It's true. He loves his family so much and believes that even though we're going through a tough time in our country, he's always going to be optimistic about the future as an American. Here's my friend, Will Kane. Will Kane, you made the Dean's List. Awesome. It's a first <laughs> that I've ever made a Dean's List. It's funny, when I say that to my friends that work on Fox, I find out if they actually made a Dean's List. Uh, Pete Hegseth has. Oh, I know he has. Of course he has. I know he has. And then Steve Ducey said he did. I actually did. I was just joking about oh, being you, like... Oh, of course you did. Yeah, yeah. When? When did you make the Dean's All List? All the time. Well, <laughs> I mean, what is the Dean's List? The Honor, uh, yeah, honor like, Roll? I think honor so. Honor Roll? Honor yeah. List? Yes, I graduated... Uh, I think I graduated summa cum laude wow. from Pepperdine. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. What did you study? I, I actually studied broadcast journalism. Okay. Um, which... You went down the path. But I didn't originally, Janice. So okay. I remember... Um, so... I wanted to be since I was a, I had two career paths and they've always sat there in front of me. One was attorney and the other was broadcaster. And my dad was an attorney mm -hmm. and I idolized my dad and seeing what he did being a small town trial lawyer in Sherman, Texas. And this sounds like my mom would be like, oh, well, my contribution to your career is that I watch TV. But literally every morning that I woke up, my mom would have on the Today Show. Okay. And I think by extension, I just looked up at that television every day and saw people who, you know, had an interesting job with a lot of influence and things to say. And that's what I want to do. But to be clear, in the beginning, it was in sports. So mm -hmm. when I was in high school, I, I probably wanted to go, you know, become Bob Costas or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so when I got to college, I majored in broadcast journalism and I immediately did not like it. Oh, yeah. Why? I felt like it was going to school to become an actor. Holy moly. Like, I have a bit of a story like that too. I quit journalism because it was going to take four years to actually get on a camera or write a story. The rest of it was like, take these psychology courses. Mm. And I was very frustrated by that. I wanted to get on the camera right away. I wanted to learn behind the scenes, took a year off and then went to college radio television television broadcasting. So the journalism av avenue, even though I highly recommend going to school and getting an education, for me it was like, well, why can't I do this right away? Well, I don't I don't recommend a journalism degree. Ah. I don't I don't recommend that to anyone. Okay. I mean, um, what is journalism? It should be your ability to to perceive the world around you and understand the truth. And mm. I don't think someone teaching you how to write a story 
I think journalism is journalism is one of the worst in terms of indoctrination as well. Well, nowadays teaching I think, you how to or not how to think, what to think. Yeah, and and be an advocate, not mm-hmm. not a pursuer of the truth. Right. But for me, it was more about like every time I sat down in front of a camera. I don't know if you remember, you like you do whatever it was, station broadcasting, um, yep. campus broadcasting. I just like I don't feel natural, and I feel like in order for me to do this, I have to tap into some type of inauthenticity that I didn't love. Okay. And so I was out. I was like, I went ahead and finished the major, Yeah, but I was like, I'm going to law school. And so I knew I would go to law school right after it. And I didn't think I would come back to this. Wow. So you went to law school mm-hmm. and did you, were you a practicing attorney? No, I clerked when I was in law school um, for a criminal defense firm, which was an awesome experience. Uh, my dad was an attorney, but what happened is, so then as much as I loved law school and loved being a lawyer, I thought, well, I really want to write a book. And so in order to do that, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to live somewhere I've always wanted to live. Uh So after law school, I took the bar exam and then I moved to Montana and I had read, uh, Two books that really influenced me in that decision. One was Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Mm -hmm. And it was about cowboys in Texas in the 1800s that drove a herd to Montana. And the other was Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck. And Steinbeck takes like an RV around the country in search of America. And he takes his dog, Charlie, with him. And he gets to Montana and he says, if you found a young boy from Washington, D.C., who had never been to Texas and said, describe for me Texas, what he would in actuality describe would be Montana. Wow. And I'm like, well, I'm going to Montana. So I moved to Montana. I ended up getting a job on a ranch up there, lived up there for a year. At While I was living in Montana, I'm the oldest of four. Uh, my dad died and I thought, uh, time to grow up, time to go home. And, um, and, and I did so. And that's the extent to which I practiced law is I moved home and helped close up my dad's law practice. Mm. Uh, my youngest brother was in high school. I wanted to be around for him. And so that's the most I ever practiced law. Wow. Do you feel like there's a journey that's already laid out for you or what's your idea in that? Like, I always think that uh, there's a bigger thing that, you know, fuels our path than us just making these random decisions. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, if you would have asked me, so one of the traits that I've acquired as I've gotten older, Janice, I would like to say, it doesn't sound like something, when you say this, it sounds almost like it's um, an oxymoron or counterproductive or self-defeating, is that I've I've acquired to some extent a greater sense of humility. Mm. So if you'd have asked me that question in my 20s, okay. I would have said no. Uh-huh. There's no such thing as fate. Okay. That I am a man of free will and I'm the master of my future. Yep. And I would have r- recoiled at the idea that there is something guiding my life mm-hmm. besides me. Yep. Um, as I have gotten older, I have certainly gotten more in touch with my faith mm-hmm. and the role and purpose that God plays in our lives. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can carry that fully into believing that my life is preordained okay. or that there is fate. Right. But um, I would still, despite my growing understanding of the role of something else playing a role in my life, I would still like to think I am the master of my future. And it's funny when you look back on life and you know that there's these moments you come to a crossroads and it's literally like, do I go right or left here? You know, and if you think back, well, if I had made that decision, I wouldn't be here where I am. And it could be like a really small decision or a person that you met. Yeah. And, you know, there was a Garth Brooks song that, um, 
I'm a big country music fan. Yeah. And there was the Garth Brooks song, I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. Uh-huh. And I just think back at all the things that I really thought that I needed and I wanted and my ambition required, and I didn't get them. And it's good yeah. that I did not. I, you want an example? Uh, here's an example. Early in my career in doing this, after I got over the idea that what we do is inauthentic, I came back to this mm-hmm. because I felt like I was seeing inauthenticity. Okay. So I watched television. I consumed news and I felt like it was infested with inauthenticity. And I thought, surely there's a way to do this. Surely there's a place to do this where you can be real and real with an audience. And that inspired me to come back and try to, I don't, I don't go so far as to think of myself as some kind of savior of authenticity in in television, but at least contribute to more authentic dialogue Mm -hmm. on very important issues. Uh, So (laughs) this is going to be a silly transition. So, then, having come back into television, I was in the running for The View. But how did you... Wait! <laughs> whoa! Okay, wait a minute. So how did you go from, you know, closing up your dad's business to yeah. getting into broadcasting? So I knew I wanted to be in media and um, uh, understanding, like, well, okay, you didn't come from the... And I wanted to be an entrepreneur about it. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't at that time, say, I, I want to be front-facing. Okay. So I said... Um, you know, I don't have the kind of money to buy a television station or a radio station, but I can go about buying and being in small town newspapers. Okay. So I took a year and I moved to very small towns in central Texas, Johnson City, Llano, Mason, and um, learned. I, I, was a, I was a law school graduate. All my buddies were making well into six figures. And I made $19,000 a year. Uh, yeah. And it was a, these were tiny newspapers. And I did everything, meaning... I wrote the articles. I delivered the papers. I mean, I did everything. And uh, I learned that business. And then after a year of doing that, I went and bought my own. And I and I bought a newspaper north of Dallas. Then I, I bought another one. I started another one. And I put together a little group of small town newspapers north of Dallas, which is the direction that Dallas is growing. And then several years later, I sold that off to um, a bigger media group. And, and I can't, and then I got involved in Latino media, which I could tell you about, but eventually I ended up here in New York city and I told you kind of consuming this content and, um, thought I could do better. And so I just, I produced a television pilot. Um, I'd never asked for a job. I'd only been entrepreneurial about it. And I produced a television pilot, which led to a conversation with national review. What was it called? Uh, Cane and Table. Oh my, what a great name. Okay. Um, and, and what was the premise? What were you doing? It was me and three or four pundits, two left, two right, sitting around, having a meal, drinking uh, coffee and uh, talking about big, big issues of the day. And it's like, if I can take the whole stimulus of, of, of television out of this, if I can get people to be real, it might be a very, in, no faux like kumbaya yeah, yeah, nonsense, yeah, yeah. but like real source of disagreement and where we really lie. And um, it didn't go anywhere because that's not how news works. When was this again? What was the 08, year? 09. Okay. And, and uh, that's not how television works mm-hmm. in news. Uh, entertainment television does, but not news. So, but one of my panelists was a guy that worked for National Review and I said, can you introduce me to the guys at National Review? And then I met those guys and they said, you could do video for us, but we don't have any money. And I was like, well, you can introduce me to everybody you know in television and that would be my payment. And so I did that for them, working for free for like a year and they introduced me to Bill Shine mm-hmm. and other people here at Fox, and which actually brought me here first. Wow. And I was doing stuff for Fox for free, like going on Hannity. I went on Fox and Friends. And then 
one night I sent an email to the president of CNN. Um, at the time, his name was John Klein. And I had a clip of myself. And I said, you need a voice like mine over there, which was true then and is true now. And, um, and he responded within 15 minutes. I, by the way, I guessed at his email address. First name dot oh last name at gosh. Turner. Yeah. And uh, he responded within 15 minutes and said, you're right. Come see me. And I came in and I Cute. sat down for a pilot with Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer and Kathleen Parker had a show called In the Arena. Wow. And Elliot and I immediately hit it off in a way of vigorous disagreement. But you, know? you respected each other. Well, he's a really smart dude. Okay. And you'll remember Elliot's yes. past. Yes, I do. <laughs> I know a lot about New York governors yes, these days. <laughs> um, but Former. They, 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 uh, I think he, he appreciated the spirited debate and dialogue, had some level of respect for me. And um, yeah, so I signed, they signed me to CNN. To start, and look I did that at you. Every night. Where I mean, where do you think that comes from? I mean, listen, I I feel like I'm one of those people that kind of was like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to apply for this job in New York City, and I believe in myself that I'm going to get this job, and that happened. But I can't give like ten examples of that, which is clearly your career path. You're like, you know what? I'm going to try this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get it. Well, so where does that come from? Okay, you know, my as I let me think about this and see, sound it out out loud. Maybe so. My dad was a again a small town lawyer. So, you know, I remember my dad coming home and in 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 not the not the villain, not the enemy, but the adversary in his story mm. was always the big firm lawyer. You know, in in down in Dallas, the high rise lawyers, and he fashioned himself as sort of like a you know, a solo, independent, like, gunslinger. He literally had a, a an Old West gun um, framed on his wall with six bullets underneath it and a plaque that said, gunfighters don't charge by the bullet. Wow. So the implication was, like, they charge by the job, yeah. right? So big firm lawyers charge you by the hour. Yeah. I charge you to get the job done. Unbelievable. Right? So it was always, like, this independent spirit. And then when I got into my 20s, it became entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. um, where, and to this day, I still... I really respect people, Americans, that have risk tolerance. I'm going to do this. I can do this better, even if it's full of hubris, and, and who live on that thin edge between success and failure. It's funny. Yesterday, I said to my wife, I don't think I've failed enough lately. Like, it's been a while. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that like, oh, like I've never, and it's been a good bit since I've really tasted blood in my career. Like I've fallen flat on my face mm -hmm. and I've failed. And I don't know that that's a good thing. I think that's, it means, I read this book one time by Al Newharth, who's the guy that started USA Today, because uh, I was in newspapers. And so he was CEO of Gannett. And in the 80s, they decided to start USA Today, which was a, a real um, big moment mm -hmm. in American media because there had never been a national print media before. And at that point, CNN, had, I can't remember what CNN had even started. I can't remember, 80s or 90s? Uh, I can't remember. But he, he said in this book, he had children, he said, I wish for all of my children to have one major failure before the age of 30 mm. because it's easier to recover you don't have kids, you don't have dependents and all that. And if, if you haven't, then you haven't risked enough. Wow. And so that's always stuck with me. I'm well over 30 now, but, um, well over 30, not, it's not even a close call, but, uh, but, um, I don't know. I like the idea of the, of the risk, not gambling, but I do like gambling, but, but the calculated risk taker, the entrepreneur. Yeah.
And that's what you kind of want to instill with your children. You know, I feel the same way. It's like I worked really hard for where I am. Your dad did, too. And you're going to have to do the same. You can't kind of ride on our coattails. You're going to have to get out there and, and do it. And you do want them to have a soft fall. Right. Um, that's the trick. It is the trick. Right there is the whole thing. Like I had this conversation with a buddy the other day. I would like my kids to graduate from college without debt because it frees them up to pursue whatever options they might think best suits their career. Okay, but then you say, well, I would like my kids to have a little bit of a cushion to start a business. Or, I mean, you can go the other way too. The, the whole trick is how much without ruining their own ability yeah. to pursue future themselves. It's true. That's the balance that we have. Yeah. Uh, listen, I'm I'm the type where I want them to go out there, but I'm also like, but if you fail, you come back and live with me. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's it, but an incredible career. Now tell me about the view. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, by the way, uh, one more point on the you asked a minute ago about kind of like emailing that. I also believe this and I would give this advice to anybody. I I I've never been afraid of no. Okay. I've n somebody says not interested. That's no problem with me. You know, like, will you try again though? Oh, absolutely. That's why it's no problem. Okay. But I don't take no from people who aren't empowered to say yes. Mm. So make sure if you're getting a no from someone that matters, that they actually have the power to say yes. Do you see uh, what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Com Are you going to the top person? Might as well, because yeah. you're wasting your time and don't get down about it. That job, that person, nine times out of 10, that person's only power is to say no to you, mm. right? They don't actually have the power to say, yes, I'll put you on TV. Yes, I'll hire you. Yes, I like your idea. And that's why you found out what Rick Klein's John email Klein. was. Yeah. John Klein's email. Might as well go straight to the he top. He was the top. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Why did I bring up the view a minute ago? I can't remember. What, uh, but... Because you had your, your, your cane and table, mm -hmm. and then... When was the offer for The View? When did they think of men for that role? Yeah, I can tell you precisely when that was. So um, this was towards the tail end of my time at CNN. And it was the the um, the guy running The View was the original founder of it, Bill Getty. And um, I like him, by the way. I do, too. I do, too, to this day. And um, in the show was Whoopi Goldberg, Jenny McCarthy. Uh, I think Sherry Shepard was still on it. Joy Behar. And I think that's everybody. I'm not sure. And, um, I came in and they had, they had me sit in and went, it went really well. I mean, I think I was the right level of combative <laughs> me. I mean, I'm definitely combative. I've, my career is defined by debating Stephen A. Smith, Elliot Spitzer, Whoopi Goldberg, but doing it in a not ugly way. Right. Don't give an inch, but you don't have to be ugly, not giving an inch. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then they invite me back again and again and I, I found out and Getty was pretty honest with me that his plan was at that point to integrate for the first time a male into the view. And, um, I think it was going to be, I don't think I'm talking out of school. This is a long time ago. Uh, one gay guy, one straight guy. Okay. I was the straight guy. Yeah. Um, and, and then on the last day that I hosted and you know, they have seasons mm -hmm. like it ends. Yep. 
might have been the last day of the season, that day, Getty, um, Jenny McCarthy, I think Sherry Shepard, if I remember correctly, were all fired. They gutted house. They brought in Bill Bill Wolf. Do you remember that? And then they totally redid the cast, and then my plans were out. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Oh, unanswered prayers. That's why I brought that up earlier. Okay. And I thought that was a job I was good at. I showed I was good at. I should have gotten it. Yeah. Um, I changed agents, which oh. was I sh- that, that was a, a good move for me at that time. But, um, it, you know, I look back on that. I'm like, I'm really glad I didn't get that yeah, job. Yeah, but at the back time. Back to the unanswered prayers thing. That's what I thought I needed at that time in my career. And I'm really glad I didn't get yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And then what happened? And then I ended up at ESPN. Okay. So this, this is always less interesting to me, Janice. And when people ask me, like, at some point you get an agent in this business, yeah. right? And that's pretty uninteresting to me. <laughs> like, yeah. Because first of all, when I... I, when I'm I don't have one, by the way. Do, good for you. I haven't had one for 20 years. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I had one for a hot minute. Oh, uh, you did? But I got my job here at Fox by myself. Yeah. Actually through a makeup artist that work here, worked here. And I thought to myself, why am I paying this guy when he didn't get the job? Yeah. 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 And then, you know, there was a little bit of weirdness. Uh, like, well, you signed this forever agreement and I worked that out and said, but you didn't get this job for me and I'm planning to stay here and I don't really want to go anywhere else. What do so. I need? Right. But listen, agents have a purpose. There is no a doubt. purpose. And they, and they played a role in my career. Yes. So I have to give them credit. Um, for example, the agent that I had at that time got me introductions and ultimately the job at ESPN. And um, they, I'd always been a massive sports fan. I'd already done some time now in politics and news. And Um, they took me up to ESPN. I met some executives. It wasn't right away. It took a little while. Um, and, and then I ended up there for five years. I was at ESPN and and loved it. You loved it. Loved it. I love sports. I love, um, I love being around people that it's just fun to show up every day and have a, it was guys, inevitably a group of guys that I, you know, I had ended up with my own show, the Will Cain show. And every day we would, come together and we just laugh and talk sports and argue because yeah. uh, there was political underlie, you know, themes, but that was okay with me. And the guys that worked on my show behind the glass, um, disagreed with me, but we did it on air. I don't know. I loved it from start to finish, but to the point, an agent played a huge role and then bringing me over to Fox. Okay. So I have to, I do have to give them, I, I don't do it reluctantly. Agents play a very important role in your career, certainly at times. Especially starting out, too. But it's less interesting to me. That's my point, because you don't have control over that. You know what I mean? Like, that much. So I had control over getting into the business in the beginning and, you know, emailing the president of CNN, but... And I think also when you, like if somebody's listening to this and they think I, can, I want to do this for a living, then they think I need an agent to make that happen. I thought that mm-hmm. when I, um, when I wrote a book, I mentioned that when I moved to Montana, I thought, well, the secret to getting published is I got to get an agent first. And that is kind of true, but it just makes you feel powerless to live back to other people's ability to say yes and no. Mm-hmm. When I don't, I know this about myself. It's the major source of my own unhappiness if I don't feel in control. Yeah. I don't mind failing mm-hmm. if it's by my own failure. Yeah. I just don't like being in control of my success and failures. And then you talked about being authentic. I think the secret sauce of Fox News is authenticity. I think when I was hired almost 20 years ago... Um, it was because the person who hired me said that woman is the same woman that's sitting in front of me and she's the same person I'm talking to that's going to be on television. Mm. I think everyone that works here for the most part 
is the same person that you would see on the street. What do you think of that? In my experience, yeah. yes. In, in in so I'd say two things. That um, obviously I can put this through the prism of Fox and Friends, and yes. then primarily Fox and Friends weekend because that's my primary job. Yeah. What people say to me often on that is, um, "Wow, you Pete and Rachel have such great chemistry," you know. And I can just tell you that's because we authentically like each other. Yeah. And there's a lot of trust. And you know this. I mean, if there is trust and respect, then there's, it just opens the door up. Oh, you can make fun of me. I yep. can make fun of you. Oh, we can laugh. It's just a different world than a world guided by insecurity. Yes. You know, yeah. like the, the, other, the other part of that is, and I talked about this um, this week on the Will Kane podcast. I'm trying to remember. I forget my train of thought. Um, no, you, you were mentioning. Being call, authentic. Yes. And working at a place where people are like they are on television in person and how much you love. Well, I've authentically lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I mean, listen, we've been up since, what time do you get up? It's not going to sound as good because what time did you get up? I get up at 3 a.m. Okay. And I get, then. I get up at 4 Okay, that's, oh, there's a difference between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. I, I think like, I don't know what time Ainsley gets up. Rachel tells me, I think she gets up at like 2.30. For women, we have a little bit more prep time that we have to. It's that, and what, I don't live in New York. So when I'm here, I stay in a hotel and I'm really close. That's right. So I don't have a long commute in. Well, I love that they hired you because you can tell that you are truly like a guy that wants to be himself and you have an opinion and you're not afraid to share it. Uh, and how was that going from sports to being an opinionated person about political stuff? Oh, an easy transition because I was, I mean, I, I will forgive you if you didn't know me. That's, that's, I mean, like, I don't expect, I was known in sports as a guy with like, oh my God, this is guy's got the strongest opinions. Like, a lot of people don't like me because of that. But how did you go from like talking about Dallas Cowboys and then into politics? Well, so remember now, I was doing that before I went to ESPN. And then once you, once I was at ESPN, you know, this was a time when, and it still is, I guess, sports was infected with politics. Okay. So everybody in sports, I think it's probably always been the case, wants to be a political commentator. Ah. And they're all lefties. They're all, I mean, I don't say that just like as a throwaway, like adjective like a Charles Barkley is a lefty? Oh, no, not Charles. Okay. B Charles, well, but that's what makes Charles so amazing and unique is he's an independent thinker. That's awesome, yeah. Right? Right. And But everyone, almost, um, he, sports is entirely left or quiet. Huh. If somebody's not on the left, they're quiet. Yeah. And I wasn't. I wasn't on the left and I wasn't quiet. Okay. And so I would go on, outside of having my own show, the other show I did the most was a show called First Take, which okay. is a sports debate show with Stephen A. Smith. Yep. And Max Kellerman. Do you still talk to him? I do. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, de it, de it deals with very serious issues. It deals with uh, mostly race-based okay. issues. Yeah. And I was the guy not afraid at all. I'm going mm. there and say, no, BS. That's not racist. Or, you know, or it's wrong to kneel during the national anthem. You know, mm. whatever it was. And I became pretty controversial <laughs> in, in, in sports. And so I was used to big, bold, strong opinions, people disliking what I had to say. So the transition to Fox wasn't hard. Did they respect that over there though? Did they respect that? <laughs> they carries a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah. Some people did. did. Some people did. Right. Not everybody. Okay. Yeah. I think we need more of that though, don't you I think? I would think so. I mean, respectful dialogue. I think nowadays it's just they shut you down at the front door. No doubt. Including relatives. Stephen A respected it. 
Well, that's good. He put me on the show. Um, he wanted that disagreement. Um, some executives definitely understood that, hey, we might not be in touch with a great percentage of the country here. And we've got Will, and he is not afraid to do this. Uh, but there were some colleagues, definitely, mm-hmm. to this day, that don't. Do you think we're getting better or is it getting worse? Worse. Worse. Yeah. I think so, don't you? I do. I, I hate it. Yeah. Because I feel like I, I kind of, I, I go both sides. You know, I'm from Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very socialist government. Mm-hmm. Um, the media is controlled by the government. That's part of the reason why I came to the U.S. is like they kind of have a cap on what you can do there and what you can say. Mm. Um, and so I feel really blessed to come to a place where it's like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? You can do that, Right. I didn't feel that way. And I love Canada. My mom's there. My friends are there. Relatives are there. Still have wonderful things to say. But for me, I needed a place that was going to be accepting of all the dreams that I wanted to achieve. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's very sad to me because I, I do. I feel like there are some things I kind of agree with Democrats on and there are some things that I really agree with conservatives. So, you know, I'm really glad that I do the weather <laughs> for the most part. You, you, you know, listening to you talk reminds me of a friend of mine who moved, who's, who's Italian and then lived in the United Kingdom for some time. And then I got to know her here in New York City. And I'll never forget her telling me this. Like she, she got here and she's like, I want to do something in fashion. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. You should. And then she, she kind of does. And she goes, it's just so different to live in a place where people say, yeah, yes, you should do that. That's exactly what happened. Because she said living like in, it, first of all, in Italy, it's like, well, what does your family do? And like, you kind of, you do whatever it is your people have done. Mm-hmm. Not that, not, not, not that it's the law, but it's the culture. It's the yep. custom to follow in footsteps and kind of be, and then you get to UK, it's very class-based. Well, that's not really in your lane. Yes. You know what I mean? You yep. should aspire in, in this category. Mm-hmm. Of, and very, again, culturally, there's no, you absolutely should do that. Yeah. You absolutely should go knock down that wall. You should absolutely shoot for that ceiling. And coming from Texas, by the way, that is part, you asked me earlier, that is, I feel like that is deep in the culture of Texas. You should absolutely drill that hole in the ground. There could be millions underneath That there. is tremendous. And I think everyone that tells you that moves to the U.S. from a different country will say to you that we are living that American dream. I, I, I feel grateful, blessed every day to live here and have my boys, you know, be like, what do you want to do? Yeah, mm. you can do that. I'm going to help you do that. Yeah, me too. And and you said is, you know, are things getting better or worse on, on the ability to exchange dialogue? I, I also worry that we're losing that culture. I, I worry that we're losing that rugged individualism. Mm. You know, there are some people that say, oh, that's, um, what is that? That's, that's ethnocentric, jingoistic, xenophobic. It's, it's whatever. Um, no, it's America. And and I think as we get older, wealthier, more comfortable, and more entitled, we lose that. Well, that's the job of us as parents, because my husband will bring my kids to a parade, 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, excited to say the national anthem and put our hands on our hearts when the when the anthem is played. I think that that's our job for us to tell them that that's important for us to take them to see a World War II vet talking about his experience mm. for opening that up to mm-hmm. their lives. That's for us to do, right? Because I don't know if we can trust the teachers to do that or the schools. It's my favorite job. Yeah. Being a parent. Yeah. I mean, like what you're talking about. Yes. Like, uh, and, and, and then back to that thing, like how much do you give them before you ruin them? Like my, my battle on that is I don't want my boys, I have boys as well, brainwashed. Mm. I don't want to brainwash my boys. I don't want the school to brainwash my boys. Yeah. What I mean by that is I'm very cognizant of the fact, I don't know how old yours are. Uh, they are going to be 14 and 12 in January. Almost February. the same. I've got 14 and 11. It's very, I mean, it's an interesting So what I want is I want them bracket. to think for themselves. Yeah. And I know, okay, okay, that sounds like a cliche. No, no, no. I don't want them to believe what I believe because their daddy believes it. Yeah. I want them to, if they, I do want them to arrive there. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Yeah. But they have to make it on their own. You see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't, look, I wasn't in the young conservatives club or young Republicans club. I didn't do that stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm cognizant of the fact that when I was at ESPN, my boys talked about sports. And now that I'm at Fox, I all of a sudden, they talk more about politics. And I, I see some of their friends. We, we lived in, in New York for a while on the Upper West Side and their friends. I'm talking about nine, eight, nine-year-olds, right? Mm-hmm. Had opinions on Donald Trump. Oh. I'm like, what? Do you, how does? And by the way, they weren't favorable. You can assume, mm-hmm. but how does an eater? You don't know anything. No, you know nothing. And I, don't, I wouldn't say it to the kids because it's clearly the parents, like handing down that. They're belief. listening to the conversation at the d- dinner table and doing more. Yeah, I need to tell them like this is a virtuous opinion and this is not a virtuous mm-hmm. opinion. And I want my sons. I, so my job is to teach them values. Right. Right. It, wherever those values lead them, in terms of politics or what they want to be when they grow up or how risk tolerant they want to be. I can't guide that. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's another struggle is I, I have to, as a parent, I'm really trying to understand that this is, what is it? It's a, it's a sculpture, but I'm not, all I'm doing is putting the clay on the wheel right. or whatever. You know, I'm, I have not as much control as I'd like to believe about what this sculpture ends up looking like. I think they're, I think they're going to turn out. Okay. <laughs> I think, I hope so. I had a question. I know it was a good one. And I think we both have that like brain fog right now from being up so early, but are you an optimistic person? I know we're at a weird, I think the pandemic is what really kind of brought the pendulum to one side, I think, but also it brought us as parents to pay more attention to what was happening because we were in our homes trapped for so long. And so you're going through the day to day, you know, now we're kind of back to some normalcy, but when you're trapped in your home and you're seeing stuff that's happening out in the world that you're not allowed to be a part of, that stirs things up. Mm. You know what I mean? I am without a doubt an optimist. Yeah. Not even close. Okay. Okay. Now let me tell you why. And and I can acknowledge and be somewhat pessimistic about our macro culture. And I am. Meaning where we're headed is the United States of America. But that doesn't mean that I live my individual life as a pessimist. Okay. Okay. So maybe it's an inflated sense of self, right? But this is back to that entrepreneurial thing. You won't be an entrepreneur if you're not optimistic about the future. You just can't. Yeah. Why, why would you? It'll fail. Right, an optimist, an entrepreneur has to believe in a positive outcome, and I also believe in the individual, the power of the individual. So even if everything else is going to hell in a handbasket around me, now nah, I can do something. Mm-hmm. So I have to be an optimist. I can't 
that I can't live a world. I can't live in a world where everything is bleak and dark down the road. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll create a. I, I think I would create something false in my head. Yeah. Because I have to. Well, I feel like we have to go through hard times for the good times to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm. a storm rolls through and sometimes that clears a path Mm -hmm. for something else. Okay. And then here's another reason I'm optimistic. And I just did this on the Will Cain podcast. This is is a fascinating stat. So the power of a small minority. So if you think about where American culture is going and why, it is usually the you think, oh my gosh, do 51% of the people really believe this stuff? Like whatever it may be, trans issues or or the, the modern day fa- uh, fixation with race. Um, and and what I mean by that is uh, race should define you. Race is the first thing about, mm-hmm. le- do, do 51% of people really believe that? And the answer is no. Culture isn't driven by consensus. We don't take a vote and we democratically say, this is where we're going. A small intransigent, intolerant, and I don't use those words as negatives, okay? I mean, they simply will not budge. Minority directs where we go. Mm. And so I talked about a couple examples of this. Here's one. If you look at most of your food labels on your food, yeah. I don't know if you know, have you ever seen this? There is usually, not always, but more often than not, a little U with a circle around it. Okay. Have you ever looked or noticed no. that? Okay, so look up your, pa- your, your food product, product packaging. Okay. And you'll start seeing it. Okay, and what does that mean? What is that U? It means that that product is kosher. Okay, Mm. how many people are kosher? How many people practice a kosher diet? Three-tenths of 1%. Three-tenths of 1% of Americans are kosher. And yet, well above 50% to the majority of packaged goods are produced kosher. Why? It's because if you're not kosher, you'll eat it anyway. You're flexible. It's no big deal. But if you are kosher... No, I'm not touching that. You have to. So the the culture at large accommodates a small, intransigent, intolerant minority. Mm-hmm. The intolerance being, I'm not going to eat it if it doesn't fit my, right? Okay. It's why we don't have peanuts on airplanes. Mm-hmm. How many people really? Do you, do you remember people falling out on the airplane, dying of allergies? No. I don't. I, that's not to say people don't have peanut allergies. Yeah. But how many? Yeah. Right? And yet mm-hmm. now we all eat pretzels. The optimism of this is that... A positive vision of America can be driven by a small, intransigent, intolerant minority. Three to four percent of Americans who believe in a very optimistic, positive, value-based vision of this country can direct the culture if they are as devoted to that principle as someone who is kosher is to their diet. That's excellent. That's optimism. It is. (laughs) And I do believe one person, one person that stands in an arena can change things. No doubt. Yeah. I have a buddy who's a trial attorney. He tells me about it all the time. Um, So you send him back to the jury room. You... One person. One. It's person. usually one that drives the jury, and they do post analysis, and they have they, they do these mock trials, and they'll have people fill out how do you feel about it, okay, and then they'll fill out their stuff, right, and then they go back to deliberations, and they come out. Not, not only do they come out with a different verdict than what they said going in, but they're sometimes some of the largest advocates for the new position, wow. and they're like, why are you so you're so passionate about this position, which contradicts. 180 degrees from what you said before you went into deliberation. Mm. It's because they became the choir to that small one individual in the jury room or the small minority. Yeah. Or sometimes it just takes one voice to break through. Mm -hmm. You know, like Horton, here's a who, right? Yeah. That that one voice breaks through and, and then they can hear them. Yeah, you can apply it to anything, Janice. You can apply it to vaccines. You can apply it to, I mean, look at our culture and say, how many masks 
Do you think that 51% of Americans at any point in time were like, you better put on your mask? Even the people that were advocates for it mm. were probably accommodating a feeling inside that needed to belong, that didn't want to be the, the black sheep, didn't want to be the outlier, and bent to the will of the 3%. Mm-hmm. That pandemic, you know, and also it brought us together as parents that want to do well for our kids. I mean, my kids were in public school and they were on the tablet. And then I found out the Catholic school was closed one day, Yeah, one day. And now both my kids are in Catholic school. So you have to you have to do your own homework. You have to stand up for what's right for your family. Mm. And I also think what's important is you brought this up reading books. You told me about two examples in your life that you read a book mm. and you believed you could do something. Mm -hmm. We need to have, we need to be reading more. There's no doubt. And you know what? Let me just be the front forefront. I need to read more. Yeah. Not well, like, no, I'm serious. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. TV's gotten better. And so mm. I find myself like yeah, watching, no, listen, that's... Uh, I, I, I watch series like Yellowstone or whatever. I'm like, this is time I used to spend reading. And to your point, I haven't thought about it. Like those books served as inspiration for big decisions in my life. And I love Yellowstone, but it's really not driving anything deeper than my fashion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you for stopping by today. You're a fascinating person and also somebody um, that, I don't know, I, I, I think you, you have it right. You've got really good... Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate a compliment... Um, coming from you. You are a person of great conviction and courage. You've illustrated it to everyone, to America over oh. the past couple of years. And, um, you know, I think I saw it, said this on social media one time, like you and Megan and I mean, like, uh, it, this is a, like almost a side note, but to see y'all's friendship and having each other's backs and the way you guys have all, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty inspirational. Mm. It's pretty awesome to see because uh, that's rare as well, by the way, you know, to, to really have true friends and true loyalty and, and to have true courage. So I really appreciate that compliment coming from you. Oh, you sweet person. Well, to be continued then. All right. Another Dean's List episode. I look forward to it. Hey, Will, tell me when your podcast is on. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, right here at Fox News Podcast. You can check it out, the Will okay. Kane Podcast. I love it. And what kind of, like, guests do you have on? Well, today, I don't know when this one will upload, Okay, um, but that means... It's either today or in the it's just the last couple of days, depending on when the Dean's List uploads, Tucker Carlson. I have an hour-long conversation with Tucker about wow. everything. When his politics changed, his haters and his lovers say, what happened to you? So I ask him, what happened to you? I ask him about how he spends his day. When you wake up, what do you do? How do you prepare the show? Um, yeah, we have an awesome conversation. What's your favorite book? What are you reading right now? He's somebody that reads. A lot. It's, yes. big, it's real big deal. He makes a point of that. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And I will tell you this. Um, Tucker, when we were when I was going through all the stuff with my husband's parents and them dying and, and really wanting to shout from the rooftops that I thought something was going on in New York, he was the first one to say, whenever you're ready, you come on. And I'll always be grateful for that. Yeah. You know, he, he's somebody that brave, he is brave and he will, he's somebody that has our back too, yeah. you know, yeah. somebody that has an opinion and he should be able to express it. Absolutely. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Will. It is such a pleasure getting to know you better. And I always love to see you on Fox and Friends weekend. Don't forget to subscribe to the Will Kane podcast because he does a wonderful job with that as well. 
Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.